Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Andrew Fung on the topic, The Meaning of Life. This November 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Andrew Fung is a Sydney-based GP and Catholic apologist specialising in marriage and bioethical issues. Good evening, everyone. As I said, it's a great pleasure to be back here, where I started out as a were as a public speaker, I think, many many years ago, and still a few familiar faces here. The old guard, I suppose you could say. And there's been a few people, a few new faces, and a few people have moved on. But it's a great privilege for me to give this talk on the meaning of life which is based on the teaching of the last two popes, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. And, and really this topic, as we know, is of immense importance to us. Immense. What is the meaning of life? I have teenage memories when I was very young of trying to nut out the world in my own little mind at that time. And at various stages I thought I had everything under control, I knew what it was all about, which of course I didn't. And of course, as all of you know, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know, the more there is to learn. But it is important that we get this question right. What is the meaning of life? Because what it means to live, what it means to be human, to have a human body and a spiritual soul, actually directs how we live, how we act. In other words, how we live depends on how we see life how we see the meaning of life. I want now to talk about a story about a woman called Kathleen. And this story is not meant to condemn someone like her, to condemn her, but very much to show us how important that we get this question right. What is the meaning of life? When she was young, her mother neglected her for hours and days on end, very much alone. Her father was involved in organised crime and tragically stabbed her mother to death. She herself, Kathleen, herself suffered sexual abuse. She had foster parents after the death of the mother and of course the father was put into jail. But she never truly felt part of that family, especially when they forgot her birthday. She eventually got married, she had a husband, but she did feel she had to lose weight. She's a little bit overweight, she felt she had to lose weight to please her husband. And she writes in her diary, must lose extra weight or he will be even less in love with me than he is now. I know that physical appearance means everything to him. This is taken from her diary, which I'll be quoting a little bit from. She didn't know real love. Even now, I still regard some feelings as a form of weakness, and love was never said or shown for me. She once said, after she'd fallen pregnant, if it wasn't for my baby coming soon, I'd sit and wonder again, what was I put on this earth for? What contribution have I made to anybody's life? 
Do you ask yourselves these questions sometimes? Have you ever asked these questions? Why am I on this earth? Why am I alive? Who am I? What is the meaning of my life? When the baby comes, love at first sight doesn't come with it. Kathleen sits at home despairing. Why not? She's even repulsed by breastfeeding. Repulsed. She hates it when the attention shifts from her to her newborn child. She feels the abandonment of when she was rejected as a child. She writes, so many things point to the fact that I'm not meant to be. I'm wanted at birth, shuffled about for whatever reason. She feels anger inside. You know what happened to her? She was convicted of serially killing all four of her children. And these children were killed when she was very young, when they were very young. Is it really surprising that she killed her children when her mother was murdered in a fit of rage by her father? When her foster father forgot her when the grandchildren come? When she has no bond with her own children, with her own biological parents, is it surprising she cannot bond with her own children? She felt rejected by her foster parents and family and then she takes it out and rejects her own children. And in that anger, she feels, she actually kills them, which is a terrible tragedy. So let's then ask ourselves, what is the meaning of life? What does it mean to be human? Let's just ask the audience here now, what do you think is the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing? In life for you. If we want to ask ourselves this question, what's the most important thing in our life? Most of us will say it's love, isn't it? The most important thing of life, to have life, is to have love in your life. To be loved and to love. Would everyone agree with that? That's the most important thing. Deep in our hearts we know that love alone leads to true happiness and this is exactly what Pope John Paul II said. Man cannot live without love. How about that? Life is senseless unless love is revealed to him. Life is senseless unless love is revealed to him. Without love, we remain incomprehensible to ourselves. Life is meaningless unless we encounter love. If we do not experience it, if we do not and make it our own, and if we do not participate intimately in it. So you can understand how to Kathleen, this poor girl, life was senseless because true love was not revealed to her. She never understood herself because she never encountered true love. There's an old expression, nothing gives what it has not got. You've heard that saying? Nothing gives what it has not got. If we do not experience true love, we can't give it to others. So then let's just ask ourselves the next question. Why is love the most important thing in our lives? Why? If love is the most important thing, why is love the most important thing in life? 
To answer this question, we need to go right back to where human life began, back to Genesis. Because there we find the reason why we were created, the, why, the reason why we exist. It's there we find the meaning of life, what it means to be human. So let's go back to Adam and Eve, to the Creator. We read in Genesis that Adam and Eve were made in God's image and likeness. We all know that. God made Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. And they were meant to reflect love. If they were made in the image and likeness of God, they were meant to reflect, they were meant to be like God. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself as creator and Lord. And this, of course, is still true today. He is the creator, he is the Lord. But in the New Testament, Jesus Christ our Lord fully revealed himself. Sorry, God fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And what did God fully reveal himself in Jesus Christ as? He revealed himself as self-giving love, as self-donating love, as self-sacrificing love. He revealed God as love as a trinity of persons in love. Or as the Catechism says, three persons in an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament we have the Lord and the Creator. In the New Testament Jesus reveals God as love. Self-giving love, self-donating love, self-sacrificing love. He reveals the love of the Father. In all these sermons we've heard this all before. If then God is love and humanity is made in God's image, in the image of love, of course it follows that the meaning of life then is to reflect God's love, isn't it? It's to share God's love. As Pope John Paul II says, love is therefore the fundamental, the basic and innate vocation of every human being, the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. We're all called to love. And let's just think about Adam. Remember how lonely he was when God created, there were two stories of creation, one was where male and female created them, but the other story was where he created Adam alone first. And remember the comment of God, it is not good that man should be alone. Remember that verse in scripture, it's not good that man should be alone. Yet, he had the animals of company. He had a body, the animals had bodies, but the animals were different. He wasn't satisfied with the company of animals, right? All the animals were brought to him, which would be a suitable companion for Adam. None were found. They could not satisfy his desire for love. He felt unfulfilled. Only someone like himself, made in the image of God, could reciprocate his love could satisfy his desire for love to love. And thus Eve was created and Adam shouts aloud, At last here is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Pope John Paul II says, Man becomes the image of God not so much in the moment of solitude, alone, but in the moment of communion. This is a very important statement by Pope John Paul II. Traditional philosophy and theology of the church has centred upon the fact that we image God as an individual, which is true, we do, through our soul especially. 
But Pope John Paul II is saying we also image God as communion. We image God not so much in the moment of solitude as alone, but in the moment of communion. And this is why we feel so unfulfilled without relationships of love. If we're really honest, this is what it's all about. We need relationships of love to feel, to feel fulfilled. And this is because God himself is a communion of love among divine persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Three divine persons in an eternal exchange of love, a communion of love among divine persons. And since man is the image of God, he must reflect that. He also must be, mankind must also be, a communion of love among human persons. Because the, the copy must reflect the original. God is a communion of love among divine persons. We reflect that by being a communion of love among human persons. God created man in his own image and likeness, Pope John Paul II says, calling him to existence through love. He called him at the same time for love. Reiterating this call, we are created through love for love. This is our vocation. So then what then what then is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is found in giving and receiving love. This is a simple statement by Pope John Paul II in the Gospel of Life. And as I said, this is why we feel so empty unless we are in relationships of giving and receiving love. So Adam and Eve then found meaning in life in giving and receiving love, in reflecting God love, because they were in the image of God who is love. Very, very simple, isn't it? God is love. We reflect that as his image. We must reflect God's love to others, and we must be in relationships to reflect that love. People like ourselves. That's why Adam cried out in fulfilment at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Scripture further says, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. It's been mentioned before. Now the meaning of life is found in giving and receiving love. And Pope John Paul II goes on to say, and in this light, human sexuality and procreation reach their true and full significance. So particularly when we deal with our sexual drives, it's within giving and receiving love that it all makes sense. Pornography, divorce, contraception and other sexual sins are very, very destructive of human relationships, of human beings. It's not real love as we know. In fact, it's using others for self-gratification and using someone is not loving them. Very interesting, the scripture goes on and says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Pope John Paul II in his Theology of the Body addresses, says that these texts show us that Adam and Eve were aware of what he calls the nuptial meaning of the body. So what did Pope John Paul II mean by the nuptial meaning of the body? He says the nuptial meaning of the body is the body's capacity to express love. That love by which we become a gift and so fulfill the very meaning of our being and existence. This is a very, very important statement. The nuptial meaning of the body is the body's capacity to express love, that love by which we become a gift and so fulfill the very meaning of our being and existence. And what this means is 
that the meaning of life found in giving and receiving love is not something purely spiritual, cerebral, intellectual. It's found through our bodies. The meaning of life is found in becoming a gift of love through our bodies. The meaning of life is visibly found in our bodies. The meaning of life is actually reflected in our bodies, especially in our gender as male and female, masculinity and femininity. In fact, masculinity and femininity visibly proclaims the call to one, to, to become one, to be a mutual gift of love. So the scripture says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother cleaves his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Male and female created them for this one flesh union. A call to union and communion. But we have to be very careful here that this call to union and communion, this call to be a gift of love, was without lust. And how do we know this calling for Adam and Eve to become one was without lust? What's the little pointer there in scripture? It is that they were naked without shame. Adam and Eve were both naked without shame. There was no need to cover up because there were no lustful looks. There was no feeling of being treated like an object, as an object of lust, a thing for sexual self-gratification. And we only cover up when we actually feel shame, when we actually feel threatened, when we actually feel that someone is treating us as an object, when we feel a lustful look. Nakedness without shame actually points to the original goodness of creation. Remember when God created the whole world, what did he say? God saw and behold it was very good. Not just good, very good. And so when Adam says, at last here is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, he's gazing upon Eve in the beauty of her femininity, the fullness of her femininity, body and soul, with the vision of God. He sees the very goodness of her in her body. So they were naked without shame because there was no lust. They were naked without shame, revealing that Adam and Eve felt a call to be a sincere gift of self, as in the original plan, the original mind of God, a call to unselfish love to each other. A call to unity and communion, as we said, reflecting the Trinity, because in a sense you could think of it like this, we have the Father and the Son, and the union between them, the love union between them, being another person, the Holy Spirit, just as much as a husband and wife are called to be one, and giving forth new life, a child. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, husband and wife, new life, child. The fruit of their love. In fact, that's one of the, one of the hymns is, the Holy Spirit is fruit of their love, the Father and Son. The child is the fruit of the love of husband and wife. Okay? They felt a spiritual complementarity. A spiritual complementarity that was reflected in physical complementarity, like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle matching together. So they felt this call of one flesh union in unselfish love, a call to be a sincere gift of self in unselfish love to each other. And of course, that's not how we experience sexuality today. That's not the way we normally feel it because of original sin. And in fact, what happens after original sin is Adam and Eve hide from each other. 
because of the threat of lust, the shame that they feel in each other's presence. Well, we've talked then about the meaning of life being giving and receiving love. We've talked about where this all comes from, the fact of our creation. Now I'd like to talk about what do we actually mean by love? Because everybody bannies the word around. You know, I love chocolate, I love this football team, I love music, I love my wife, my husband, I love my girlfriend. What do we mean by this word love? We have to be very careful because only true love will give us the happiness that we all crave. And if we get it wrong, for what we think is love is not real love, then we will be unfulfilled and not happy. You know, Pope Benedict wrote an encyclical on love, didn't he? He wrote an encyclical, Deus es Caritas. Have I got it around the wrong way? Robert? Caritas Caritas is Deus. God is love. God is love. And he describes two sorts of love, doesn't he? He describes the covetous, seeking, desiring love, what he called eros love, and the agape love, the bestowing, the descending love, the unselfish love, love for your sake. Two sorts of love. And he didn't say, though, that covetous love, this desiring, seeking love, is wrong, but rather to grow, this love must ascend, must be purified, must follow self-renunciation, or else it dies. And this is the experience of a lot of people, you know? People fall madly in love, and then you hear about it with a broken up. What happened? Just all fizzled out. The energy was all there, the fire and the passion, but it just burned itself out. What happened? It wasn't purified. In God, love is both agape love, purely unselfish, but also eros love. This is what Pope Benedict has said. It's seeking love as also unselfish love. And we can apply that, that love that in God to us. God doesn't seek us so much for his own sake. He seeks us for our sake. He seeks us. He seeks the, the lost sheep, the sinner, doesn't he? He goes searching for us. He's desiring us. He's desiring our love. He's desiring us so that he can give himself to us in unselfish love. There's a reconciliation there. And we have to learn the same way of loving, going from seeking love to unselfish, bestowing love, transforming love. So a man may pursue a woman because she's beautiful, but his love will only grow when he begins to love her for her sake, for what he can give, not for what he can get. Remember a story of a friend, some acquaintance of mine, his wife was pregnant in the middle of the night, I think it was chocolate cake, she had this big craving for chocolate cake. So out he went to a salon and bought us a chocolate cake. You know, that's unselfish love, isn't it? Yeah, but he didn't feel like getting out of bed. I certainly don't, middle of the night. But you do because you love. You are giving unselfish love. That's the tough love. He loves his wife. He doesn't feel like it, but he does it because he loves her. This is unselfish love. A woman may just desire to marry a man because he's rich, so they say. Maybe she wants to have children. But a love for her husband will only grow when she loves him for his sake, when she does things that he wants, rather than always satisfying her feelings. When she loves him for her sake, making meals that he likes, forgiving him when her feelings are hurt. 
remembering, well, he's only a man, he doesn't understand. Is that true? Men just don't get it. We don't understand what it is to be a woman. So there's plenty of capacity for forgiveness, for opportunities for forgiveness from women to men. You ask my wife, she'll tell you the story. <laughs> so love must become the same as God's love, to love for the other's sake, not to love for my sake. As Vatican II said, man is the only creature on earth that God has willed for his own sake. So since God loves us for our own sake, we should love one another for each other's sake, to be like God. So this is our choice. Self-interested, selfish love or unselfish, disinterested love. Love for what I can get out of relationships or love for what I can give in relationships. That's the choice that we have to make. Vatican II says that the human being cannot fully find himself, cannot fully find himself or herself except through a disinterested gift of himself or herself. As Pope John Paul II comments, this allows us to conclude that it is precisely when one becomes a gift for others that one becomes fully, most fully oneself. Very interesting, isn't it? When you give yourself away in love, you discover yourself. You become fully yourself. We find out who we are, discover our true self-identity. And if this poor lady, Kathleen, had only known true love, unselfish love, experienced it, she could give it away in her family, then she would have found this clue. Well, who am I? She could have discovered herself. A daughter of God, a child of God, an image of God. As the Lord would say, he would lose his life for my sake, will gain it, will find it. The paradox of the gospel. We have said then that the meaning of life is found in giving and receiving love. We've discussed the nuptial meaning of the body, the body's capacity to express love, that love by which we become a gift and so fulfill the very meaning of our being in existence. The call to express that love through our bodies. And we have discussed that now we're called to give ourselves away in unselfish love. The question now is, how do we live in the here and now with this call? How do we live concretely a life of self-giving love? What do we do now? Well, I think the first thing we must do is we must imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. Imitate Christ. To follow his example of living unselfishly. To learn how to be to give self-giving love, to learn self-donating love, to learn self-sacrificing love, to live the nuptial meaning of the body. And how are we going to do this? Well, I think one concrete suggestion is that we try to attend Holy Mass often. If we're going to Mass once a week, we can maybe go a couple of times during the week. If we're going to Mass a couple of times during the week as well as Sunday, go every day. If you're going every day, maybe we could spend some time in adoration. Spend some time with Christ, the Bridegroom. Go to the sacrifice of the Mass, because then we learn the art of sacrifice. Because the sacrifice of the Mass represents Christ's sacrifice on the cross. His redeeming love, self-sacrificial love on the cross, represents his death and love of the cross. And if we receive his love and learn from him, then we will become like him. 
This is my body given up for you. This is what he's saying to us in the Eucharist, isn't it? This is my body given up for you. This is my blood shed for you. Like Mary, Our Lady, we must contemplate Christ's self-giving love. And as our Lord said, do this in remembrance of me. Repeat it. Go to Mass and repeat his example. Do it in remembrance of me. Follow his example. So we go to Mass. We learn the art of sacrifice, being we with Christ, who sacrificed his life out of love for us. Now most of us are called to marriage. It's the most obvious vocation and common to most of us. For those who are not married, we need to pray earnestly to ask the Lord whether it is his will to meet and marry the right person. Now I'll tell this story. I actually prayed the rosary for more than 19 years every day. One rosary every day for 19 years, more than 19 years, before I actually married somebody. Did you have that specific intention? Yeah, to meet and marry the right person, if it be God's will. 19 years, that's a lot of roses <laughs> every single day. And there were times, I must say, I was feeling like giving up, chucking it in. It's a bit, you know, as the years roll by, you know. Remember my, my godson, he was very young at the time, was about five, I think, and I was visiting the family, they were living in Wagga, and I was just playing with the kids, you know, this big family. And he said to me, his name was Andrew as well, this little boy said to me, Andrew, I said, yeah. He said, cheekily, when are you getting married? I said, oh, I don't know. And he said to me, yeah, I know. I said, how do you know? Well, what, what do you know? He said, in a long time, a long time. I thought, jeez, how long is a long time? This is about 17 years ago, mind you. 17 plus 3, I've been married 20 years ago. And he said, I asked him, well, how do you know? And he said, my guardian angel told me. And I used to think about that as years old, by, you know, three, five, seven, nine, twelve, you know, the nine, twelve, fifteen, and, you know, you start to wonder, is it really going to happen? How old was he? He was about five. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah. So we need to pray earnestly, is it my vocation to marry? If we're not sure, we need to follow our Lady's example and wait upon the Lord in prayer. Not my will, but thy will be done. And I actually began to say that. Look, it's for your will. I get so frustrated. Relationships always breaking up, never going anywhere, seeming to have promise. I'm doing this for you, Lord. Not for me. It's too much pain and suffering to go through this over and over again. So that became my prayer for your sake, for God's sake. So we need to wait upon the Lord in prayer. But if we are convinced it is God's will that we marry, then we should pursue it with gusto and conviction, not waste time. It's very, very important. We believe God wants us to make a beeline. And maybe a while you just have to wait, but you've just got to pursue your vocation as soon as you know it. And I don't believe in long dating and courtships or engagement for years. You know, you're wasting time. If you, if you meet the right person, marry the person. You know, Don't muck around. Um, my wife tells me this: you shouldn't, you shouldn't be um, going out with a guy more than a year. You know, if you don't know by a year, just give it up, find somebody else. They're not for you. You should know by a year. You know, even if you have to come back to them later on, it's probably better to break up. This is just my own personal reflection, right? It's not gospel, but it's better to break up after a year and come back. Maybe someone needs to mature. Maybe you need to learn some. Maybe there's something you have to overcome. But you find people 
much better to get back together rather than just dragging it out for years and years and years, especially with women. You don't want to drag out their biological clock. You know, it's a bit unse- it's a bit selfish. Anyway, talk about celibacy. Some of us are called to celibacy. You now we might say, well, how does celibate share in this spousal love, this desire for union that we've talked about? Celibates refrain from the marital act. It's true. They're giving it up. They refrain from the marital act and that total self-giving to one spouse in marriage. But they do that in order to give themselves totally to the Lord and his mystical bride, mystical body, the church, for the sake of the kingdom. In other words, they contain themselves, they contain the sexual energies and refrain from the one flesh union in order to give themselves like Christ in anticipation of that giving which happens in heaven when they will be like the angels and no longer given in marriage, as our Lord said. So they're actually living, it's meant to be living in a sense the heavenly life on earth in a preview of the self-giving of the blessed in heaven. So they're not actually missing out so much as jumping ahead because we who are married know that you know, marriage is not you know, infinite bliss and perfect happiness. You know, often it brings a lot of suffering and disappointment. And, often, and, and all of us probably experience that to some degree or another. But not that it's not making you happy. It does. But it's happy because you're giving yourself unselfishly to your spouse. And a marriage is a sacrament that enables you to love someone as imperfect as you are, if that makes sense, right? All those Americans say, yeah, I agree. Yeah? It's true. It enables you to love somebody who is not perfect, just as we are not. I actually found that once this clicked in my mind, that I shouldn't be looking for someone who fulfills my needs, rather I should be finding someone who can receive what I can give, I actually find it very easy to find someone to marry. It just all clicked into place very quickly. Quickly, I wasn't looking for someone perfect anymore. I was looking for someone whom I could give what I had to give. Then it made a lot more sense to me. And that just continues throughout my married life. She needs what I can give. Not 100% because only God can fulfill someone perfectly, but to a large measure and extent while I'm on this earth, this person needs what I have to give and helps that person grow, and vice versa. That person has things, qualities that help me grow as a person that get me closer to God. In the meantime then, for those who are in the in-between wondering, you know, is my vacation this or that, I think we need to live unselfishly. We're single, serving others around us in unselfish love, family, friends and work colleagues. We need to read about what true love really is, the hard love. You know, there's a good book by Archbishop Fulton Sheen, Three to Get Married. It's full of lovely stories on the, on the idealism of marriage meeting the reality of marriage. It's good to get our ideas straight about this. We should read the lives of the saints, you know, how they showed true love. Pray, do penance, especially as men fast for our future spouse. Fasting is a good way of preparing for marriage even if you haven't got someone at the moment, doing penance for the one that you'll eventually marry. When I started going out with my, my wife, I started to pray a rosy for every day as well. I thought, look, if she's the one, then I'll pray for her. But if she's not the one, at least she'll go her own way. You know, it'll all be over very quickly. 
And the number of times when we had phone calls and said, guess what happened to me at work? Guess what happened? I was able to talk about this thing and that thing and wonderful things were happening. So, gee, this is good, you know. I was praying for her and thinking good things were happening in her life. So this is this is very important. You know, my wife's going through a bit of morning sickness, bad morning sickness. So I went to Mass a few days ago and prayed that God would relieve her morning sickness. He said, you must have been praying. My morning sickness wasn't so bad today. You know? So it's got this relationship, praying and then the effect on the person. So just to sum up our talk tonight, we're going through this very, very quickly, so I'll give you an early mark. This is a wonderful quote from Pope John Paul II. He says, the core of the gospel, the core of the good news, is the proclamation of a living God who is close to us, who calls us to profound communion with himself and awakens us to certain hope of eternal life. The call of the gospel is the, is the affirmation of the inseparable connection between the person, his life, and body limits. It is the presentation of human life as a life of relationship, a gift of God, the fruit and sign of his life. It is the proclamation that Jesus has a unique relationship with every person which enables us to see in every human face the face of Christ. It is the call for a sincere gift of self as the fullest way of realising our personal freedom. As a consequence, the meaning of life is found in giving and receiving love, and in this light, human sexuality and procreation reach their true and full significance. To finish then, the meaning of life is summed up in our Lord's words, Love one another as I have loved you. Amen. Thank you. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Andrew Full. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.